0: Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Beth Darnell, PhD, clinical associate professor in the Division of Pain Medicine at Stanford University, and author of Less Pain, Fewer Pills, Avoid the Dangers of Prescription Opiates, and Gain Control Over Chronic Pain. Uh, she's a pain psychologist and has been practicing for 15 years treating adults with chronic pain and has lived through her own chronic pain experience. Uh, Uh, Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Beth. Oh, Catherine, thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, okay, the big idea, the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, recently issued guidelines to severely limit prescriptions for opiate drugs such as OxyContin, Percocet, and Vicodan in response to the national epidemic of prescription drug overdoses. Obviously, this is what you address in the book. So what is the epidemic? What's the problem? And why do you think, and obviously your book does address this, but why have we suddenly decided to, hey, let's take a look at this because we have all these people who are addicted to drugs and also there's a very high suicide rate associated with this as well. It's true. The statistics
2: are pretty astounding that more than 28,000 individuals um, die each year um, from deaths that are related to prescription opioids. And a percentage of those are certainly prescribed opioids themselves. Others um, obtained them illegally. But there's been a big national push to essentially stem the tide of these medications hitting the street. And a lot of them come directly from prescriptions, whether an individual gets them from family members or whether they're um, eventually sold on the street. Um, It's interesting, you know, in the past, in the United States, chronic pain was not treated with opioids. As recently as 15 years ago, opioids were were not the first-line treatment or even the second or third-line treatment, but somewhere around, uh, you know, 2000, even the late 90s, there suddenly was a push to treat chronic pain differently, to treat it uh, more aggressively in the same way that people were treating cancer back then, you know, end-of-life pain pain. care. And opioids were approved for chronic pain. There was a big marketing push from the pharmaceutical companies to use opioids to treat chronic pain. It was falsely put forward that there was virtually no risk of addiction. And we now know that to not be true. So at this point, um, we have seen more deaths related to opioids than lives lost in the entire Vietnam War. This has uh, really precipitated the CDC guidelines, national agencies, even President Obama becoming involved in calling for uh, limits on the use of opioids. And, you know, this is a critically important issue, but I come at this from the point of a pain psychologist, and we can't just take something away from people with chronic pain. We have to treat the pain. We have to treat pain better.
0: I, well, I want to just step back for one minute because you talk about we didn't previously treat chronic pain with these o- opioids. We use what Tylenol um, and and and, uh, and what to, to treat pain. I mean, now we're treating pain as you say with the same kinds of medications that we treat cancer with. Um, sure. So, yeah. So so, so yeah. interestingly,
2: you know. Here's, here's a startling fact. You know, the United States does not have more pain than any other country in the world. I mean, the, the data are really clear that, you know, incidence and prevalence of pain is, is pretty equivalent in every country. But in the United States, we consume 80 to 90% of the world's supply of Opioid medications. Why is that? Why are all of the opioids consumed by the United States? It simply points to the fact that we treat pain differently in the United States than we do in most other countries in the world. And so, for instance, in Europe and other countries, for instance, after surgery, they would, um, if opioids were prescribed, it would be a very, very small amount of medication for a very short period of time. Whereas in the United States, it's, it, you know, almost anyone has had an experience with this, where you might have a, a basic dental procedure, or maybe have some sort of a, a small outpatient medical procedure, and you're given a prescription of Vicodin for like a month or a long period of time, long enough for people to establish patterns. So and why do we why
0: why are, why do we do this in the United States? Is it simply as a result of the marketing, Big Pharma? I mean, doctors are pushing, uh, and I. have have to say pushing, pushing this medication, as you say, you have surgery, they automatically assume that you can't handle the pain and that you need a drug for it when you may not necessarily even ask for it. So who takes responsibility for this? That's one thing specifically. And then we, as you I've started to touch on, I want you to um, talk about it more, but we have a different attitude towards pain here in yes. the United States. I think there's a, a cultural thing that we shouldn't be in pain at all. Americans yes. don't want to have any, whether it's childbirth or whether it's, you know, a toothache or, or whatever it is. And there's a different, I think, cultures, as you say, see that very differently. They, they incorporate the pain kind of into their psyche and then manage it that way.
2: Well, you really nailed it, Catherine, and when we look back on history, it appears that there was essentially a perfect storm that happened in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Not only was there a big push from pharma to use opioids to treat chronic pain, there was actually mismarketing that was put forward to the American public and the companies involved were actually censured by the U.S. government and fined for uh, grossly under putting forward false data on the safety efficacy of these medications. And so that's well established and that's just documented. So that's point number one. Um, the information that physicians were receiving was mostly marketing because here is what's, what's striking is that all the way up until 2011, most medical schools were putting forward between four and 10 hours of education about pain. So consider that your doctor who would graduate from medical school and go on to practice might have as few as four hours of training in the treatment of pain, and that those four hours would be very fragmented and stretched out, little pieces here, little pieces there. There's no cohesive, dedicated content on how to actually treat chronic pain. And so physicians were put into the unfair position of having to treat millions of Americans When they were ill-equipped to do so, basically the only messaging they were receiving was the marketing messaging. Meanwhile, Americans, you're right, as Americans, we want what we want when we want it, and we feel entitled not to experience discomfort or to suffer or often to take responsibility. Um, You know, easier to take a pill than it is to exercise or diet or be mindful of choices. And so along with the marketing, this really fed into that American mentality that there's just got to be a shortcut, you know, just take a pill. And in fact, in the case of chronic pain, in the case of chronic pain, a purely pill-based approach does not work well. We know this unequivocally, that it's really a holistic treating the whole person, engaging the individual in their own care is what helps people get better, feel better, and need less medication.
0: Okay, So that's not the quick fix that we supposedly are looking for. You know, pop the pill and you're going to feel great, which doesn't necessarily continue anyway the more you take the medication. But talk to us about what are the health risks that are associated with taking these uh, the pills opioids, I mean, what are they yeah
2: it 's a really a great question you know I just want to say one of the fallacies of opioids you know they 're commonly called painkillers well they don 't kill pain they don 't take pain away, and there 's even sort of a, a gotcha in that in that title you know that it's so it 's a painkiller, so it sort of facilitates this expectation that you know, I should be pain-free, when in fact, the research shows that opioids, you know, over time, they really, if they work at all, because for some people, they don't even work at all, but when they do work, they tend to reduce pain by about 25 to 30%, which isn't that much when you consider the risks, and there are many risks. Now, if any of us take opioids long-term, we're going to develop a physiological tolerance to the medication. And so that means that your body just adapts to the medication and needs more of it in order to have the same level of relief or whatever effect that the drug was giving. And so people can get into a trap of escalating doses. Higher doses put people at risk for overdose, for other side effects. And so if opioids are taken, you always want to take the smallest amount of dose for the shortest period of time because that helps you stay safe. Now, curiously, what people don't know is that in many cases, opioids actually lead to the worsening of pain over time. Talk about paradoxical because you're taking something called a painkiller, you think it's going to, you know, either take pain away or you'll be pain free, when in fact, it just maybe takes the edge off. And then over time, your pain is increasing. And so the logic, the natural logic is, well, I must need more. And so this is where this phenomenon of tolerance and while well, my pain is worsening, I need more. The doses escalate and escalate. The solution isn't to take more. It's actually to take less because what the research is showing is that when people taper off of down on their opioid dose and even off opioids, that in many cases, their pain improves as they get off the medication or at minimum, pain is the same, but the side effects go away. People feel better. They have more energy. They're sleeping better because what opioids do is they actually disrupt hormones. They lower testosterone, they lower estrogen, and they disrupt sleep. So People will think, oh, well, I'll take this medication. It will help me sleep. It's a little like alcohol. It seems like it, it helps you feel sleepy at night, but it prevents you from reaching those deep stages of restorative sleep that are necessary to help people feel good the next day, to keep pain low, and to actually keep your immune system functioning well.
0: All right, when we're talking about giving the doctors prescribing the medication and you and Now you've talked about the health risks, um, which when you discuss, you know, as you're describing them, they seem pretty overwhelming. So when you're sitting in the doctor's office and he or she says, and and you're not taking these for cancer, you're not taking them for, you know, severe, severe, you know, uh, horrific kinds of pain, but for what? For like arthritis? For like what kinds of pain are we talking about Um, after a surgery uh, where we could be doing something else and not taking these opioids?
2: Yeah, exactly. So um, historically, I mean, I've been working in pain clinics since you know, the early 2000s, and you it, people are prescribed opioids for everything, for migraines, for fibromyalgia, for low back pain, I mean, any type of pain, when in fact, what the research tells us now is that opioids are not effective for migraines. They actually contribute to uh, migraines getting worse over time. On the whole, they're not effective for fibromyalgia, for neuropathic pain. So for the majority of opioid prescribing, the science tells us that it's now um, inappropriate, that they just don't work well to treat these pain conditions. So we have to treat pain differently. And for instance, let's just talk about fibromyalgia and migraine and low back pain. For Um, those
0: who don't know what fibromyalgia is, and some people don't, some listeners, so what is it?
2: Yeah, so fibromyalgia, is sort of a—it's almost like a an, a diagnosis by exclusion. But the way to think of it is, it's sort of like often it's, it presents as whole body pain, where um, and it's associated with fatigue and and um, and other other symptoms. So an individual is extremely tired. They might have a chronic fatigue syndrome, but pain in multiple areas of the body. And so that's, you know, di- medically diagnosed by a physician. But the way that we think of it now, or the way it's talked about now in the literature is that it's it's more of a disturbance of the central nervous system. We call it central pain. And so it's located throughout the body. And what we know about whether it's Fibromyalgia or whether it's migraine headaches or even whether it's the most common pain condition in the United States, chronic low back pain, that they are best managed with actually with lifestyle approaches. Appropriate exercise, so getting on a home exercise program, using pain psychology techniques so that individuals learn how to essentially harness the mind-body connection so that they're keeping their pain as low as possible, so that people are making actually good choices, the choices that we know keeps pain low, because a lot of the choices that people make, they don't realize that they're unwittingly increasing their pain. So it's all about getting the right information, putting it together in a plan, and then living that day to day. That's what we know works best.
0: Well, don't you? I mean, you're a pain I mean, that a pain psychologist. So it's really important, as you're describing it, that doctors have to have more than that four hours of information in medical school to be able to sit down with the patient and say, okay, this is what you need to do. I mean, I've experienced that myself. I had... um, some kind of lower back pain many years ago I don't know the first thing the doctor wanted to give me was some kind of a steroid or whatever it was and I said well is there anything else I can do well you can do these exercises if you want or whatever it was I went home I did the exercises for a couple months that was the end of it the pain went away and uh, I've never had it since so but I I was the one who had to kind of initiate that to say that I'm not taking drugs I'm gonna is there a better way?
2: Yeah, yeah, um yeah. that's a common experience. It's really a common experience. And it's the reason I wrote less pain fewer pills. I wrote it for Patients who have chronic pain, for everyone out there, but also for the physicians to gain a better understanding about how these pieces fit together, they don't get this training in medical school. I mean, most physicians are even unaware of the actual definition of pain. The actual definition of pain isn't just the hurt you feel in your body. Pain is defined as a negative sensory and emotional experience. It's defined as a negative sensory and emotional experience. And yet, we, you know, while psychology is built into the definition of pain, it's half of the experience of pain is emotional, it's psychological. When you go to your doctor, they completely disregard that half of the definition, focus on treating the sensory part of it, the, that you know what you feel in your body, and then we sit back as a nation and wonder why we're in the mess that we're in, where we've only been treating this one half of the definition, and if we treat half of anything, how can we expect it to work well? And, and here we are. And so, you know, it's time that we start focusing on the full definition of pain, optimal maximize you know, the psychological aspects and give people the power to have better control over their own experience to reclaim it from the pill
0: bottle. Yeah. So we have to use as you say in your book our own mind body skills to be able to do that. Calming our minds is one thing, exercises and you have a lot of other things obviously in the book. But it, you know, it makes me think about when you have when with little kids, you know, they hurt themselves and they're screaming, then they sit on their mother's lap and kisses wherever they got hurt and they feel better. It's not necessarily that the pain changed, but they became you calm them down, they feel comforted. And then they're not experiencing the pain in the same way. We kind of lose that as we grow up as adults, I think.
2: It's the perfect analogy, Catherine. I mean, our most powerful pain relief tool is our brain. And you see that. It's a perfect example you just gave, you know, with kiddos, where you see in a flip of a switch, they shift their focus, they have a different emotional experience, and their pain disappears. Well, let's put it this way. The pain may still be there, but their suffering disappears. And it's no longer a really huge deal. It's no longer consuming their focus, their life, and they can move on. And, and you're right, we lose that because as, as life goes forward, as we become adults, we focus on the physician to fix it. And the physicians, of course, aren't necessarily equipped with the right information. It's so critical that people with chronic pain, and in fact, all of us, because if we all live long enough, we'll have chronic pain. It's so critical that we equip ourselves with the right information so that we're doing everything we can to help ourselves, so that we can help ourselves feel better and actually completely change our experience of pain, just by using psychological tools and techniques. It's really amazing.
0: And one of the, obviously, you discussed this in the book, too, and I think it's really important. Um, If you are on opioids and you want to get off of them, there really, you have very specific ways in which we should do it. I mean, as we're suffering from our pain, it's for instance, you need to you talk about timing is everything. Don't try to do this when things are chaotic and your life is in chaos. Pick a good time to do it when things are relatively calm. Uh, and, and maybe we can go through some of the, the process that, that you need to do because it's not so easy. I mean, if you are, yeah. I'm using the word addicted, I guess maybe loosely, but still there is an addiction to, to this medication. Yeah,
2: so I I always like to separate out, you know, the physiological tolerance. So any of us who take opioids long term, our bodies are going to get used to the medication. And if you stop them abruptly, you will experience withdrawals. That does not mean that you're psychologically addicted. It means you're physiologically dependent. So that happens to everyone. and, And people are rightfully terrified of the withdrawals because they're a horrible experience. And so many people, I, you know, I treated patients over the years. They would remain on opioids for years, I mean, a decade or more, because they, they believed that they couldn't get, go down on the medication. They believed it was impossible to get off because they tried once, they experienced withdrawals, and then they just thought, well, that's it. I have to stay on them. And the truth is you can go down if you want to. You can get off opioids if you want to. But there's a formula for success And you, so it's important to have that right information. And so some of the tips I give are always talk to your doctor first and have a medically supervised taper. Most doctors are happy to help you take less medication if you bring it forward and talk to them about it. Um, The second tip I give is, you know, go slower than even you think or possibly even your doctor thinks. If you've been on these medications for years, what's the rush in trying to get off them In a couple of weeks, when I would work with patients, we would do very slow tapers, you know, three, four, five months, because the goal is to go so slowly that the body doesn't even miss any little bit of medication. It doesn't even know what's happening. The withdrawals are not triggered. If you go slow enough, the body and the brain can adapt, and it prevents those awful withdrawals. You can stay comfortable, and you can successfully go down on the medication. And again, what most people find is that as they go down, they actually start feeling better. Paradoxically, their pain improves as they go down on the opioids. And that's a key message um, for people to hear because there's so much fear. Well, if I go, you know, now these CDC guidelines and if they take this medication away, I'm going to be left to suffer. And in fact, um, you know, there's always exceptions. There's all, I really want to be clear about that. But in general, the research shows that people actually feel better as they go down on opioids. All
0: Right. Well, and we can you give us an example? Like you you mentioned that you know you have obviously you're the expert pain management. Uh, When your clients or your patients come to you, how do they get there? Have they got reached the point you mentioned? One who's been was on opioids for years and years and finally decided I don't want to do this anymore. Are they really sick? Do they have an aha moment, or do doctors, are they recommending that they come to see you to, to have a different choice or experience a different way of getting off these drugs?
2: You know, it's, it's all of the above. We, we see the full spectrum. But, you know, the average person is somebody who's had chronic pain for years, you know, probably in, you know, early 50s, had chronic pain, you know, I'm just going to pick a number, maybe five years, been on opioids for a period of time, escalating doses, and, at a point, the physician is realizing, you know, we got to do something different here. And, and so I would have patients come to me and they would say, you know, I'm only taking this medication because the doctor prescribed it. I'm taking it exactly as prescribed. And now I'm made to feel like I'm a drug seeker and I don't want opioids. I just don't want pain. And nobody's giving me anything else, so I'm taking this. And what you see are these complex relationships between patients and doctors, and it can almost get into a parental type of feel. and, And, you know, my heart goes out to the people with chronic pain who feel judged by the medical system. They're not believed. They're, you know, then made to feel like they've done something wrong. And, none of that's the case. For the majority of people, they are just taking medications as prescribed. They don't want the opioids and the side effects, but nobody's giving them anything else. This is a failure of our medical system. We don't have good systems in the United States to treat chronic pain. I mean, good luck getting insurance to pay for a full rehabilitation program, you know, where you're, and by rehabilitation, I mean a functional restoration program that helps people get back to living well. The types of services that really we need in the United States, insurance does not cover that. And so we really need policy change at the highest level because these CDC opioid limits are not better treatment for pain. They are, you know, addressing a part of the problem and some of the risks, but we have to do better for, for people with chronic pain, and this is put forward And the National Pain Strategy, which was just adopted by Health and Human Services um, just in February of this year, and the National Pain Strategy, it's really a national call to action to treat pain differently, to treat pain better in the United States. And I look forward to seeing specific policy that will actually implement these better changes because they currently don't exist, and as a nation, we're in a big lurch right now, and that leaves patients, you know, left to basically source information, read for themselves, and help themselves.
0: Well, the problem, and as you describe it, is only going to get worse and worse, and I think you touched on that before, because we're living longer, we're living into our 80s and our 90s, so almost everyone is going to be touched, probably at some point, uh, the longer they live, by chronic pain. So this is something that we really do need to address now. How can you get insurance companies to pay for eating well, exercising, meditation, ways of calming down? Um, there's just it seems to be a disconnect between uh, getting health insurance that will cover this kind of treatment as opposed yeah. to drugs. No, I agree. And,
2: you know, I, I don't know exactly what all the solutions are, but one um, sort of heartening fact is that the science Um, is really there and increasingly there. For instance, we know that mindfulness-based stress reduction, we know that cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a psychological approach, um, these are some of the treatments that we're studying right now at Stanford University in our programs here. Um, We know that these are excellent treatment for chronic pain. They work well. People improve. Um, But good luck getting your insurance company to pay for mindfulness-based stress reduction because they don't. And so people are left to Pay out of pocket, and you know I I strongly believe that that will change in the future. But at this point in time, um, the solutions that are widely available tend to be the ones um, often with um, you know the least efficacy behind them. And so, you know, opioids are just, frankly, they're easier to get than psychology treatment, than mindfulness-based stress reduction. It's easier for someone to go out and get a prescription for Vicodin these days than it is to get, uh, you know, insurance to cover MBSR. And so there, that are, are, is are we, I have we
0: have about 30 seconds left, and, and there's so much more. Obviously, I want uh, I want to Mention your book again because there's so you cover so much in your book, and we've sort of just touched on uh, the sort of the basic topics. But less pain, fewer pills, avoid the dangers of prescription opioids, and gain control over chronic pain. Dr. Beth Darnell, um, excellent book, um, and you can go to Beth's website at. BethDarnell.com, B-E-T-H-D-A-R-N-A-L-L. And Beth, is there any other place that we should go to besides the website? Because there's just so much information besides, obviously, the book. Well, I have
2: all kinds of articles and resources on my website. You can also get the book on Amazon.com. And the one thing I'd like to say is the second half of the book is pain psychology, and you can, you're guided to develop your own personalized pain management plan, and you can get yourself on the road to success.
0: Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great. Lots of really good information. Um, we're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away because we'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
1: Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If
2: you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll free number is 866 472 5788. That number again is 866 472 5788.
0: We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. My next guest is Andrea Tantaros. She's author of Tied Up in Knots, How Getting What We Wanted Made Women Miserable. She has been a a commentator, co-host, political analyst on Fox News, former columnist for the New York Daily News. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Andrea. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay, so you have written a pretty, to me anyway, very controversial book, uh, Tied Up in Knots, How Getting What We Wanted Made Women Miserable. What do you mean by that? What we wanted, we wanted equality, we wanted to be the same as men, but as you say in the book, we aren't, uh, and so in trying to do so, we thought we were going to be happier or more fulfilled, but we're not, or you say we're not, and why aren't we? Well...
1: I, don't, I mean, I don't say we're not. I just look at the data that I've poured over when I was writing this book. And there's no question that feminism has been fantastic for women in so many ways. I mean, I couldn't do my job without um, the feminist rightful push for equality and for all the opportunities that have been afforded to women. Um, so many opportunities that now women are <laughs> spinning themselves out because they don't know which direction to go in first. So thanks, Gloria Steinem, for all these, uh, all these choices. But um, I tip my hat to to feminists who who push for this because um, it it was rightful and it needed to happen, and and they've done a ton of good. But like with anything, not everything is 100% perfect. So there are things that happened along the way, um, and there were fractions of the movement that pushed for things that have had unintended consequences that you're seeing play out when you look over some of the studies and some of the research with women. Some of the things that I'm talking about are, you know, one quarter of women today are on some kind of antidepressant. Um, girls are graduating disproportionately, according to Boston College, with lower self-esteem than when they entered, which is very troubling because you'd think even though they're graduating, uh, more women are graduating than men and they're having this college degree and they're going out into the world, why do they have less self-esteem?
0: Mm-hmm. Why do they? Yeah, magazine, I mean,
1: do they? Have, yeah. you're, well, I hadn't heard that. It yeah. really help. Yeah, running around campus, having you know sex like men, um, and, and this hookup culture with the drinking, um, and the alcohol, trying to keep up with the boys is one of the the most glaring things that they report. Um, as well as you know, Glamour magazine, and I've and sat with the editors there. They commissioned a happiness study last year, and women couldn't even articulate what being happy means. And so that really troubled, you know, the women over at Glamour. Like, what, what, they don't even know what being happy means. Also, there was a study by Justin Walfers, um, which was published in the New York Times and a number of different outlets on the they called the declining paradox of female happiness. Why are women less happy than they were before? You know, you look at the numbers. Men actually used to be less
0: happy decades ago, and now that's flopped.
1: Women are less but happy. But Andrea, and are you saying we're sure less
0: happy, less happier than we were before. But first, I have to ask you: before when, and like in the, the ni- ni- let me
1: finish in the nineteen fifties yep. and sixties when women didn't have all the opportunities they had today. So, I wrote this book to to talk about some of the consequences that women are overwhelmingly saying that are plaguing their lives. Right. So there's you know there's something called the mommy wars, which If you get any woman who's a stay-at-home mom or any woman who's a working mom who's trying to, you know, meet all the requirements and demands of motherhood, you know, they're they're more stressed out than ever. Because women, even though they're working and they have these great careers, they're still not giving up their responsibilities in the home, right? Because men aren't dropping out of the workforce in large numbers to stay at home. Some men are. Some men are leaning in more at home, and that was Sheryl Sandberg's push. But you see now women have double the responsibility that they did, which is causing them to be not just stressed out, but, but, but miserable. I mean, they're, they're angry that they don't have more help at home. They're trying to balance everything, and they're spread really thin. Then single women, you look at women in their 40s who have these excellent careers, but they're saying to me now, you know, I put everything on hold. I'm too old to have children and get married. I wish I would have done this sooner, but I really put my career first. I really thought that's what I was doing. You have my generation, which, you know, I talked to Jenny McCarthy last week and, and a number of other women who aren't political, who aren't conservative like I am. And they said, yeah, I felt like I had to do everything myself. You know, my generation was told we had to do everything ourselves, that we didn't need a man, that we should, we should just put our career first and hard charge forward. And that's what I've done. Um, and so, and then you look at the younger women. And the younger women, their stories are just, they are so tied up the knots. They don't want to be part of this hookup culture. They don't want to be on Tinder, but they feel that they have to be on Tinder because there's no other way to meet men. So they're cooperating with the guys, playing by the man's rules, by logging on to Tinder and letting a guy swipe left and connect with them when the guy doesn't even know their last name. They're hooking up and they don't even get a call the next day. There was a recent study published that showed that women... They feel that if they don't give it up, give up the milk, let's say on the first, second, or third meeting, the guy's going to dump them and move on, and this has them really stressed out because that's not what they want. Um,
0: So again, but I I have to stop you there because at that point they're already either. Well, but at that point they're already, let's say, in college, and you're saying, and then when, even when they finish college, they have lower feelings of self-esteem. But those feelings of self-esteem date way back into you know early childhood. Where does that come from? I mean, that comes from child-rearing practices with their own mothers or fathers or whoever raising them, doesn't it? Uh, that they no, don't you feel look confident at the enough. Of the data. What? No,
1: you look at the numbers of the data. They had a much higher self-esteem when they entered college. So you're doing an, you're doing the freshman entry with a high percentage of happiness, and then it's much, much lower when they graduate, according to Boston College. So something's happening in those four years on college campuses, causing them to be sad and depressed when they graduate. And when you look at the qualitative research, it has to do with the hookup culture and the way they're treated on campus.
0: But it seems to me they don't have, as you're describing it, they really don't know how to... They have all these opportunities, all these choices. Let's say when they get to college, there's a whole set of new choices as opposed to when they were living at home. So they don't know how to handle them? Is that what you're saying? They don't know how to make good choices for themselves that will boost their self-esteem? No, I, I think women all kinds are incredibly of, smart. I think they're yeah. very smart. I think
1: the issue at hand is you had a group of women that were the loudest voices in the feminist movement who told women that they didn't need men. They told women to put off marriage and childbearing and not get married. Gloria Steinem, Helen Gurley Brown, both women who were married, by the way, Helen Gurley Brown, the one who said, don't tear down the patriarchy, use your sexuality to navigate it. She was married. She relied on her husband for every decision that she made. Yet when she was outward facing, she says, girls, don't get married and have sex like men. On the other side of the coin, you had the Betty Friedan's You had the Gloria Steinem's, who said, tear down the patriarchy. It wasn't really about equality. It was about being better. It started this adversarial tone with the opposite sex, which has caused really Mars and Venus to be more dysfunctional than ever, because it wasn't, again, about just having that rightful equality. It was about being better than. And now you have a culture where it seems that women are in charge and men are demeaned in commercials and sitcoms. And we've seen all the books. I mean, Maureen Dowd asked if men are even necessary. Um, My generation especially felt that push, the anti-men push, sort of the man-haters movement. And it's trickled down in our culture, and it's definitely unbalanced. So these, these two sects of the feminist movement, even though they encourage women not to get married, they got married themselves. So there's a lot of hypocrisy there,
0: and there's a lot of women, myself included, who are waking up to it. All right, when you say you're waking up to it because you're a different generation than I am and I have a mother who's, you know, a, was a 50s, you know, home with the apron and taking care of the kids and gender roles were very clearly described and my father was the lawyer and he was the one out working but her expectation each generation has different expectations you know because i want to get back to that happiness thing that you were talking about women don't feel happy they can't even describe what happiness is i'm not sure that men can either actually um we're a culture who we want to be happy but we're not sure what happiness is but my mother's expectations for instance and that was the post-world war ii were like their expectations were so different probably my generation the expectations obviously were very different than yours my mother didn't expect to have choices didn't expect to be able to do anything other than what she did take it which was a good thing and very positive but take care of the family it made it easier and that you had your husband to tell you what to do. You know, it's much easier to have a benevolent dictator than a messy democracy. I guess is the comparison. It gets messy when you have all these choices, um, and so that whole happiness thing. When you talk about that, I'm not. I'm sort of going around. But what do we mean? What are, it has to do with expectation? I think expectation. Well,
1: think about what you just said. Yeah, women were happier when they had less choices, and the gender roles were more clearly defined. I don't know if they were happier. I don't think that they, I don't think that my mother was any happier. Women were exponentially happier. So that's what I'm trying to dig in and figure out because I don't particularly want to go back to the 1950s. I don't think any woman does. Um, So what's, what's at the root cause of that when gender roles, as you just said, were more simpler um, between men and women and women had less choices. They were exponentially happier. That's a fact. That's not my opinion. So, what happened? What happened along the way with all these choices? If we have more opportunities or over as I talk about, what's spinning us out? And again, the more I looked at in the book, it is that we went for the rightful push for equality and we have all these opportunities, but one, we did it being told that we didn't need a man, so we had to do it, we had to have it all, all alone, which is impossible. Sheryl Sandberg's entire point of lean in, if most women you know, read it, which they did, But the media didn't cover her most important recommendation. She said, ladies, if you want to have it all, if you want to lean in in your careers, you have to get one thing right. Pick the right husband. It's the only way you can truly lean in. That's from Sheryl Sandberg. She's not a conservative. Same thing with Beyonce. Beyonce didn't need Jay-Z. Beyonce had millions of dollars in fame before she met him. She waited to get married. She waited to have her child, which is a, a great role model for, for women nowadays. Um, so I elevate her in the book. We might not be ideologically in sync, maybe on some issues like equal pay and other things, but largely, no. But she's living her life in a more traditional way. So I dug deeper to say, you know, what is she really, how does she live her life? What is she saying about her relationship? And she told Oprah, I wouldn't be the woman that I am today if I, quote, didn't come home to that man every single night. That's Beyonce. So conservatives like to tear Beyonce down, Mike Huckabee does it. I think it's not helpful. I think some men in the Republican Party have created real problems for women. This isn't a political book. This is just a look at how women in pop culture today and in our, in our culture, our society, who are successful, live their lives and how they've managed to figure out balance, having it all, and happiness. And when you dig in deep, you really do the research, you look and you see, What Sheryl Sandberg's really telling women, what Beyonce's really saying, that that I couldn't be who I am if I didn't come home to that man every night. You look at Lady Gaga. She gave an interview. She said, I am strong. I'm independent. I call the shots on the stage. But I come home, Taylor Kinney, my fiance, he's the man. I'm the woman. Our roles are very clearly defined. That's Lady Gaga. Again, not a conservative. So it was a fascinating look at not what people say, but really what they do they live their lives, and women in society today, the ones who are happiest to live their lives in a traditional way, so I look to them
0: and their words to try and figure out how we get balance. Part of the solution, but you're but talking about you're talking is... about Lady Gaga and you're talking about Beyonce, for instance. These are not women who are living traditional lives. Just in general, these are superstars. These are celebrities. So if you compare them to say the average woman next door or the the you know the teacher or the doctor or the who or uh, that's very different
1: than compare. You know, Not compare. in their relationships, it's not. not in their, no, take all the riches away. Look at how they handle the one focus of my book, gender roles, relationships. I'm not talking about the cars in their garage. They live their life with their partner, their man, in a traditional way, and they're not afraid to say it. Same with me. It wasn't until... And Jenny McCarthy went off about this. She said, I've been trying to do everything myself, do everything myself. I was trying to not let the guy pay. I wasn't trying to open the door. I was trying to do everything. And I realized I was turning men off. That men are wired to be a certain way. They want to do nice things for us. They want to be chivalrous. They want to feel respected just like women do. So we really, we really want the same things at the end of the day. I mean, if equality is about equal rights, then it's about equal respect, and equal kindness. And Zosha Mammoth, who is David Mamet, of course, his daughter, and she co-stars with Lena Dunham on Girls, she penned a column in Glamour where she said, I had a date with a guy and the next day he didn't buy my oatmeal, you know, and I wrote, you just Lewis and Clark my body, the least you could do is buy my oatmeal. And she said, where have all the traditional dating roles gone? Where have all the men gone? Where is all the romance? Why don't men do what they used to do? She's not a conservative but she's calling for traditional dating rituals. That's why I was inspired to write this book, because I think there's something to it. Equal is one thing, but we're not the same. And It's okay if a woman wants to have those traditional gender roles in her life, while she's still the butt kicker in her career. That's how I live my life. I've ignored a lot of the feminist doctrine over the last couple of years. I don't want to have it all all alone, and I frankly, I can't. So I, welcome, I welcomed a man into my life to help me. Frankly, he does everything for me. It makes me so much better at my job. I'm far happier, and I have so much help at home. It's wonderful, and I'm not afraid to say it.
0: And, and when you say he does everything for you, because when you say he does everything for you and you have a very traditional role at home, what,
1: is, mm-hmm.
0: what does that mean specifically? Like, what does he do? I mean, traditionally. Well, he, this
1: morning, I'll give you an example. My okay. coffee maker broke. Mm -hmm. and I knew I had to do some radio interviews on this book tour and he said hang on a second I said what am I going to do I have to make all these calls now I can't uh, how am I going to do this without coffee he said hold on a second within 10 minutes he had coffee delivered from the local coffee place around the corner and he was already on amazon.com ordering me a coffee maker that'll do same day delivery that I'll have later this evening um, so that I could focus on my job and my work and and I just smacked a big kiss on him and said, I love you so much. Thank you. And it's allowed me to be on the phone with you right now. And I got my caffeine buzz and um, I'm less stressed and I'm smiling. I'm much happier.
0: Okay, so that's mutual respect, and I, that, I, I don't quite understand how that gets labeled as traditional or non-traditional. I mean, if you have a partner, a husband, a boyfriend, whatever, um, and you developing a mutual respect and an understanding and who does what and, and making each other comfortable, I guess I'm not seeing it in such a political... Can I ask you a question? Did yeah. you read my book? I read part of the book. To tell you the truth, I did not read the whole book.
1: Okay. But I, read, I can, um, tell.
0: But, I can yeah? tell you haven't read the whole book by yeah. your questions. No. Yeah. Um, are you,
1: can I ask, are you married or single? Or, um, I was married for 20 years. Uh, that's
0: why I'm very. I was married for 20 years, divorced after 20 years, and have been with my boyfriend, not married by choice, uh, and everybody on my show knows this, it, for 27 years and have a very traditional, non traditional, I guess is what I'm saying, So I, I, relationship. Um, so it doesn't fit into any political framework, but a mutual respect and um, a relationship that works beautifully. I mean, you're describing your relationship, it, um, mine, I, you know, it's been great for 27 years. Not married. Right. So, so if you read the book, if yeah. you read my book, the whole yeah, book. Okay. I'll read the, the book after exactly. that. Yeah, I'll
1: finish it. Yeah, go ahead. It, yeah, it would have been good to read it before yes. I came on. Yes. We'd have a real discussion because I think yes. we're saying the same things. Okay. I think we're actually saying the same thing. It's about mutual respect. What I don't understand and what I call out in the book is why when women's magazines, like they did last year, Glamour published a column, 10 Ways to Make Your Man Happy, they republished it. Um, it was from uh, an old, I think it was a good housekeeping column. It drew the ire of feminists, drew the ire, and Glamour magazine pulled a column, uh-huh. and they apologized. Now, I looked at the list. I, I wouldn't do everything on the list. Some of the suggestions were, frankly, a little absurd, but, but a lot of them, I would say, were common sense. Uh, one was uh, ask your man about his childhood, you know, asking questions about himself, um, what he liked and disliked growing up, be nice to his friends, that sort of goes without saying, um, mm-hmm. if he's hungry, make him a sandwich. If he's had a rough day bring him a beer in the shower I don't know if I would do it in the shower that seems like a safety hazard but, but you know maybe when he walks in the door if I know he's had a rough day he brings me a glass of wine when I've had a rough day and I thought well, what's wrong with this and again I have a great relationship with Glamour magazine so I thought why did they pull the column I love Glamour I wish they would have stuck by the column and at least had a counterpoint you know point counterpoint so women could read it and decide rather than pull the column and The more I thought about it, if you would have changed the title to 10 Ways to Make Your Woman Happy and put it in Esquire, we'd all be applauding. So at its root, aren't the suggestions on the list just basic kindness? Because if my mom were hungry or if my brother were hungry, I wouldn't say pound sand and go to the Quiznos down the street. I would want to do something to fix their hunger. Why? Because I love them. They don't have to be my partner platonic, professional relationships. It's kindness and respect. Where did we get away from that? I mean, what's the alternative? I guess I asked the women who had an issue with the suggestions. Is the alternative to say, don't be nice to his friends? Uh, If he's had a rough day, don't bring him a beer or don't do anything nice for him. If he's hungry, don't do anything. And I didn't get much feedback. No one really answered my question. So um, I think kindness has been lost. This isn't a political book. This isn't an ideological book. This is just a book to talk about the things that I think everybody, male and female of all ages, want, and we've gotten away from it, especially with the rise of Tinder and dating apps that are causing real, real stress. Uh, Even the New York Times over the weekend called the dating situation today precarious, but they didn't explain why it's precarious. I think the most troubling thing is, too, is women – especially younger women, are saying that they are in these relationships with men who they don't feel are the one, but they're too scared to break up with them because they
0: don't want to be single again. They so don't. Andrea, are you talking goal. about a specific demographics? Because, you know, as women and all of us are living longer, people's relationships at different stages change. I don't know if you have children or not, but that changes everything. Um, or if you are yes. in... Not yet. not yet, okay, and that changes the dynamics of a relationship between a couple, you know, probably whether they're in their 20s, 30s, or 40s, and, you know, my example of, you know, being married for 20 years and then having a boyfriend for 27 years, it's very different, and having grown children and having in a relationship with him at this stage, so, I mean, some of it does, whether I've read the book or not, as we've been talking, a lot of it has to do with, it sounds like, how old are you?
1: I'm 37.
0: Yeah, that generation, which is, is what Generation right, which X, which is what the books, which
1: is yeah, which about. is about yeah. I write about what I know. Well, I don't yeah. write about you know older generations. Right. Or, you know what it's like to have grandkids. I'm not yeah. there yet. Maybe my second or third or fourth. But book. some of the Gen this X's do have children, children and that changes everything. Just talking about was yeah. What right? So what I was just talking about was yeah. the younger women.
0: Young younger women, women okay.
1: Petrified, petrified, to break up with their current relationships because they don't want to go out into the dating pool because it's so precarious. And that's an understatement. That is an understatement, the hookup culture and what's happening with dating apps. It's really, really sad. It's its, it's beyond depressing to hear their stories, which I write about in the book. I mean, they're just, they're
0: horrified. We right, have two minutes, have two minutes left, so I just want to ask one more question. What's been the response for some for, for the women that you've been talking about, and for this demographics, I'm saying, for the ones who are, as you're describing, with the response is sure, great. You. I mean,
1: yes. I haven't been. Typically, I am, you know, shredded by the left um, when I will say anything about feminism, or um, they have not shredded this book. In fact, um, I had a great conversation with the founder of Jezebel, which we all know Jezebel is very liberal on um, mm-hmm. this website, and she called me and she said, "Okay, I'm reading your book." I said, "Oh boy, here we go." And she said, I'm nodding. I'm agreeing with 95% of it. I'm doggy-earing pages. I'm highlighting it, and I'm going, okay, you're making a lot of sense. And she goes, eh, 5%. I'm going, what? Come on. She said, but 95%, I agree with you. And um, we're actually going to team up on a number of different columns because if she can be from the far left in a Hillary supporter and found Jezebel, and if I can be on the far right... Um, and work at Fox News Channel, if we can come together on these issues of mutual respect and kindness, which is really what feminism is about, equality, real equality, um, in relationships and, and the sexes, then you know what? M- maybe I'm onto something. Yes. It's already a bestseller, so I'm, I'm thrilled. Thank you so much
0: for having Great. me. This is been a i nice. yeah, I'll nice the book, Tied up in knots, how getting what we wanted made women miserable. Andrea Tantaro's uh, uh, bookstores everywhere. You can buy it on Amazon, but also a website that we can go to. Uh, that,
1: yeah, or, you can get yeah. HarperCollins.com, Amazon.com, um, Barnes & Noble. You'll see it
0: right when you walk in. It's right on the front table. So the All right, great. great. Thanks so much. Thanks for being thank on the you. show this morning. Yeah, we, thank you. Yep, we're going to have to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.